If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As some listeners may remember from the Forgotten Australia episode about my Titanic ancestor, in 2018 I was reunited with my biological family thanks to clues I found in electoral roll records on ancestry.com.au. Since then, I've gone a step further, using ancestry DNA to connect with a whole bunch of cousins and second cousins. I've met some of them recently and it's really changed my world. Ancestry DNA helped me make other discoveries too because it's shown that my genetic heritage is 58% Irish. The results took me even deeper than that, revealing my ancestors came from South Leitrim, West Cavan and bordering counties. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographical detail about your history. Maybe you also have Irish heritage. In the lead up to this St. Patrick's Day, Ancestry is offering you the chance to delve into your background with Ancestry DNA at the special price of $89, saving you $40. There could be more to your story. Piece it together with Ancestry. This special offer is valid until the 17th of March 2024 and the price does not include shipping. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. This podcast episode contains descriptions of murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's Sunday the 24th of September 1893 and in a paddock on the outskirts of Cowra in western New South Wales, a young man named Bertie Glasson is writing a letter to his wife, May Summerbell, well known in Sydney as a talented pianist and musical composer. Bertie and May have been married since the start of this year but the honeymoon is well and truly over. Not that she knows it yet. All that lies ahead in their marriage is a nightmare. Bertie addresses his letter to My Darling Wife, Room 198, Hotel Metropole, Sydney. He continues, Oh, my precious Queen, I am going mad and felt it coming on for some time. I came to myself today, Sunday, in one of Stanfield's paddocks, and I had on a black suit of clothes all covered in blood. What I have done, I have no idea. I remember leaving Sydney to go to Orange. I don't know if I have been there or not. I suppose I have. I feel so terribly strange now, darling, that I don't know where I want to go. 
If I get lost and die in the bush, I hope I will be found and you get this note. Better for me to be dead than for you to have a mad husband. If I live to get back to the Hotel Metropole, I'll never leave you a day. I will try to walk to Cowra to catch a train. Tucking his letter into a pocket, Bertie Glasson continues walking to Cowra. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Citibank Axe Murders. Just after three o'clock that morning, in the little town of Karkor, Joseph Derwin had been asleep in his bedroom next door to the Citibank where he worked as an accountant. It had only been a few hours since he'd left those premises. Last night, Joseph had enjoyed a late supper with Jack Phillips, outgoing Citibank manager, and Jack's wife Annie, and their guests from Sydney, and his sister Susan Stoddart, and their close friend Fanny Kavanagh. Now, in the dead of night, yanking him from a dead sleep, came screaming and banging. Rushing to his back door, Joseph was confronted by Susan and by Jack and Annie's servant girl, Agnes McVicker. The two women were frantic and terrified. Words tumbled out. Burglary, robbery, murder. Mr. Derwin, you must help. Joseph sent word for the police and rushed to get the doctor. When Joseph and Carcor's Dr. Alfred Hawthorne hurried into the city bank, it was as though they'd entered a slaughterhouse. Jack Phillips was on the floor of the dining room. He lay in a pool of his own blood, speckled with strips of flesh and fragments of bone. Jack's head had been hacked open in numerous places, as had his arms and torso. Jack was breathing his last, and there was nothing Dr. Hawthorne could do for him. His wife Annie lay nearby on a sofa. She too was frightfully wounded. Annie's face had been split open with an axe, and she'd lost a lot of blood. Dr. Hawthorne attended to her. While Jack had just died, Annie might still be saved. On the landing, up the stairs, below the window, Fanny Kavanagh lay dead. Her throat had been hacked open. Beside her lay Jack and Annie's two-year-old daughter Gladys. The little girl was bloodied, but she was breathing. Mercifully, Gladys was unconscious and her wounds were not life-threatening. One of her fingers had been severed. Two others had been cut and she had a superficial scalp wound. It'd be established that Fanny had run here from the upstairs bedroom carrying Gladys. The attacker had been coming up the stairs chasing Annie. In the darkness, he'd swung the axe at the shadowy figure on the landing. The blade had cut through the little girl's hand before slicing deep into Fanny's neck. Fanny would have died almost immediately from blood loss as she crumpled to the floor, still grasping Gladys in her arms. Upstairs in the children's bedroom, Jack and Annie's other baby, months-old Dorothy, lay unharmed on the bed. Joseph Derwin went into the bank offices adjoining the residence, and there he checked the safe. As the accountant, it was his duty to protect his employer's interests, even at a time like this. The safe was locked and undamaged. Returning to the residence, Joseph saw the dazed Annie on the couch. She turned her gashed face to him and said, Oh, Mr. Derwin, is Jack dead? He thought quickly, and he lied. No, he said, he's doing well. There was no point telling her the truth now. The shock might kill Annie. 
and he soon after lapsed into unconsciousness. Joseph Derwin helped Karkor's police constable to search the premises. Downstairs, they saw that the rear kitchen window was raised and there were boot prints on the sill. This was how the intruder had gotten in and gotten out. Dr. Hawthorne took Annie Phillips upstairs to her bedroom. There, he dressed her wounds, made her comfortable and cared for her as best he could. The bodies were to remain in the city bank until the inquest, which would be opened first thing on Monday morning. As the sun rose over Karkor, townsfolk awoke to the terrible news. They were horrified, saddened and angry, determined to honour the dead, support the survivors and do whatever they could to catch the maniac responsible. Police interviewed Susan and Agnes. Both were in deep shock, but they gave descriptions of the attacker. He was about 25 years old, of medium height and build, with a dark moustache. Reverend Clark, who lived on a property behind the city bank, discovered that his stables had been broken into. There were boot marks in the soil and bloodstains on a railing. Reverend Clark had two horses. One was young and strong, the other old and tired. The murderer had taken the best one. Maybe it was a lucky guess in the dark. Yet he'd also unerringly taken the best saddle and bridle. This suggested that the killer knew the horses and that he knew the stables. Horse tracks led in the direction of Blaney. But this might have been a feint to throw off pursuers. Karkor's police officer sent a telegram to Sydney headquarters. And telegrams were also sent to all stations in the western districts warning to be on watch for the suspect and for the horse he'd stolen. Senior police officers left Sydney for Karkor on the Sunday night mail train. Another detective inspector was inbound from Dubbo. But local cops and citizens weren't sitting by. On Sunday, they were doing their damnedest to find the diabolical fiend. Despite the work of search parties around Karkor, Blaney, Trunky, Cowra and other western towns, there was no sign of the murderer by the end of the day. But that night, in the city bank, from her tortured sleep, Annie Phillips cried out words to the effect of, Oh Bertie, has it come to this? Bertie? Did she mean Bertie Glasson? Edwin Hubert Glasson, known as Bertie, was born in October 1866 in Karkor. A family tree photograph found at Ancestry.com.au shows a cheerful-looking young man with dark eyes, dark curly hair and a dark moustache. Bertie stood 5'10 or so and was described as muscular. He was well-known and well-liked around Karkor. Bertie was the son of a well-respected pastoralist who'd passed away in 1891. Bertie's mother still lived a few miles from town and he had several brothers living in the district. Bertie had, as a privileged son of the land, attended Newington College in Sydney and had received a first-rate education. Someone who knew him then described him in the bulletin as a, quote, rather nice and refined-looking young fellow who, so far as appearances went, might be anybody or anything. Was Annie Phillips in her delirium now saying that he was the murderer? Bertie hadn't even been around these parts for a few months. But... Hearing his name mentioned caused the penny to drop for Citibank accountant Joseph Derwin. He, like a lot of people, knew that Bertie's sister had married Reverend Clark, and so Bertie knew the horses and knew the stables. 
But thanks to his job, Joseph knew more than that. He confided his information to the police. Joseph said he'd last encountered Bertie in Karkor around July. He'd then been staying in a hotel in town with his lovely new wife, May Summerbell. May was a real catch. Born in 1867, she was a raven-haired beauty. May had passed her Trinity College musical exams in 1885 with honours and since then had been a fixture in Sydney's artistic and musical circles. May had studied with Madame Kellerman, performed numerous concerts and even seen one of her clever musical compositions selected for the 1892 exhibition in Chicago. May was also known in Kharkor, having performed at a concert there in June of 1892. May and Bertie had become engaged in December that year, and had married in January 1893. Six months later, they'd been back in Kharkor. Bertie had rented them a fine house, but had soon been evicted for non-payment of rent. Then the couple had stayed a while in a hotel. But country life didn't suit May, and she returned to Sydney. Bertie had stuck around a little longer, financing a new butcher's shop, before he too returned to Sydney. Subsequent letters that Bertie wrote to the Citibank branch in Carcor showed that he and his wife were staying at the Hotel Metropole. So why had Bertie been writing to the bank, writing to Jack Phillips and Joseph Derwin? It was because Bertie's account was overdrawn by about £50, and his new butcher's business was already failing. Bertie hadn't paid his employees their wages, and he also had debts relating to a racehorse that he'd bought. The young man might have been from a wealthy family, but he'd quickly proved himself a financial black sheep. Joseph Derwin told the police that Jack had several times called on Bertie to pay off his bank debt. Bertie had repeatedly said that he would, but had repeatedly failed to keep these promises. So Jack had gone to the Supreme Court to get an order against Bertie that allowed him to sell the butchery's assets to recover debts. The final sale had gone through just yesterday, Saturday, realising about £19 for the bank. All of this, Joseph Derwin told police, gave Bertie plenty of motive. He reckoned it had been Bertie who'd broken into the bank to steal the contents of the safe and that he'd killed Jack in a frenzy of revenge. Joseph Derwin urged the police to check the Hotel Metropole in Sydney. If Bertie was there, then he was wrong. Sydney's Inspector General of Police directed that inquiries be made at the hotel. Bertie's wife, May, was still in their room, but Bertie was not. All May knew was that her husband had gotten the train from Sydney yesterday he said he was going out to Orange to get money from a man who owed him £800. May would say that Bertie had seemed all right. His last words to her had been, God bless you, by which he meant God bless May and also God bless their unborn child, for May was now in her third trimester. The baby due at Christmas time. Late on Sunday, around midnight, Annie Phillips recovered consciousness. As she wasn't expected to survive long enough to attend the inquest, let alone any trial, Karkor's police magistrate took her dying deposition. In it, Annie recounted the horror of the attack. She said that when she tore off the Axeman's mask, she'd recognised the murderer, Bertie Glasson. She was sure of it. 
the man that Susan and Agnes had described, also was a match for Bertie. By late Monday morning, police had no doubt who they were after. But where was Bertie? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. After Bertie's bloody rampage in the Citibank branch of Car Corps, he'd made his getaway on Reverend Clark's best horse. He'd ridden the animal some 35 miles across the countryside until he reached the outskirts of Cowra. There, he unharnessed the exhausted horse and turned it loose. Bertie hid the saddle and bridle. Bertie's black suit was soaked with blood. He took off the coat and the trousers. During his rampage in the bank, Bertie had accidentally cut himself with the axe. Tearing the lining out of his bloody coat, he used the material to bind this minor wound. He hid his bloody clothes in a rock cleft, and he also hid the mask that he'd made from a soft black felt hat, cutting holes for his eyes and mouth, and attaching a string that he could tie around the back of his head. Now Bertie put on the clean, light-coloured suit that he'd stashed along his escape route as part of his planning for the bank robbery. He also wrote that letter to his wife May and put it in his pocket. Looking fairly presentable, Bertie ambled into Cowra and took a room for the night at Tasker's Hotel. On Monday morning, he came down to the dining room for breakfast. The murder was the only thing that any of the guests and diners were talking about. Bertie sat down and joined in the conversation. One of his table mates was Cowra's constable, Roger Meager. This officer knew Bertie, and they chatted amiably. As police in Carcor were still piecing together the evidence, Constable Meager didn't know that he was sitting and talking with a double murderer. The constable told Bertie that search parties were out looking for the killer. Bertie said, I'd like to help but he wanted to go alone and search the surrounding bush. He said, quote, I should like to have a horse if you can get me one, and must have a revolver, as it would be very dangerous to meet a man like that unless fully armed. Of the killer, Bertie said, the man who committed that murder is the most bloodthirsty scoundrel I have ever heard of. Constable Meager had to agree with that, but he declined Bertie's offer of help wasn't about to give this man a horse and a gun and send him off as a one-man posse. It was a pretty odd request, but the police officer didn't think too much about it. He had plenty else on his plate after breakfast. Leaving the hotel, Bertie mooched around town. He stopped into a business owned by a man that he knew. Bertie claimed that he'd been in town for a few days already, having come up for a holiday. 
Haven't you seen me knocking around? He asked. The man said he hadn't. He asked, Why didn't you call if you had nothing to do? Bertie replied, Well, the truth of the matter is, I have not much money and did not want to let you know I am hard up. Just as his conversation with the constable had seemingly been aimed at getting himself another horse and a gun, Bertie stopping in with this man and trying to get him to agree that he'd been in Cowra for a couple of days appeared a crude attempt to establish an alibi for the time of the murders. But why he next went to a barber's shop? That was anyone's guess. In any event, Bertie chatted amiably with the hairdresser and other customers. While Bertie had been playing his curious games around town, the reverence horse had been found on the Cowra Common. Its markings were distinct. This was definitely the murderer's getaway animal. Around the same time, a member of a search party found the bloodstained clothes and black mask that Bernie had hidden outside of Cowra. It was clear someone wicked had this way come. Soon after, Constable Meagher received word from Carcor by telegraph. Bertie Glasson had been identified as the murder suspect. The police officer didn't have to go far to collar the suspect. He just walked into the barber shop and confronted Bertie. Where were you on Saturday and Sunday? The police officer wanted to know. Bertie denied being in Carcor. Constable Meagher then said, From information I have received, I arrest you for murder. The officer slapped the handcuffs on the suspect. Bertie, who'd been so calm and chatty all morning, suddenly seemed to take leave of his senses. His face went pale, his eyes dilated, and he glared around wildly as he grabbed at his hair with both hands and said, I must have been mad. I never did it. I am mad. Bertie collapsed and cried, Oh, where have I been and what have I done? If I could only think, what will my poor wife say? The constable took Bertie to Cowra Police Station. A search of his clothing revealed evidence of his financial problems. There were several pawn tickets and a summons to appear at Carcor in October on a debt of £14. Bertie was also in possession of a £5 banknote from the City Bank. This presumably one stolen from Jack's trouser pockets when he'd been searching for the keys to the safe. Bertie's letter to May Summerbell was also found and read. This was the one in which he'd written to his precious queen to say he was going mad for some time and had just then found himself in a paddock with his clothes covered in blood and no idea of what he'd done. Except, of course, Bertie hadn't been wearing those clothes when he'd been arrested. He was wearing fresh clothes that he'd stashed. When he was made to take these clothes off, his minor injuries were noted. The position of these matched some of the bloodstains on the discarded suit of clothes. Bertie's minor axe wound was still wrapped in the lining that he'd ripped from that blood-stained black coat. There was no doubt the clothes that had been found outside Cowra belonged to him. At Cowra Police Court, Bertie was formally charged with the murders. Handcuffed and in leg irons, he was that evening taken by Constable Meagher on the mail train to Carcor. The Australian Star newspaper was to report, quote, on arrival at the station, a large crowd had assembled, and it was expected that the prisoner would have been hooted. But the wild, haggard look of the man as he made his appearance, handcuffed under the charge of police, sent a thrill through the excited spectators. When Bertie saw the crowd, he glared in all directions, struggling with his leg irons. 
which the Australian star characterised as him apparently feigning madness. My God, my God, he was heard to exclaim. Bertie was handed over to a sergeant. Hello, sergeant, he said, before pausing, holding up his handcuffs and shouting, What are these for? Why did they put these on me? The sergeant said, Didn't they tell you? Bertie replied, No, I know nothing. What have I done? Looking at his leg irons, he said, These hurt me. Why did they put them on? Looking wildly at the crowd, but saying nothing else, Bertie was led to the lock-up, Carcor's entire population providing an escort for him and the police officers. In the police station, Bertie was put into a lineup with a dozen men. Susan Stoddart was brought in. She walked straight up to Bertie and screamed, This is the man who said before, I want money. She glared at him. That is he. Say it again. I must have money. Say it now. Speak out. You said it to me on Saturday night. Now say it again. Oh, my sister, I have had my revenge. Bertie reeled as the hysterical witness was led away. Who is that lady? He said. Who is she? What does she mean? Jack and Annie's servant girl, Agnes McVicker, was still far too disturbed to view a lineup of suspects, but she identified Bertie from a photograph. Next, it was Bertie's turn to view the carnage he'd wrought, or had allegedly wrought. He was marched up Carcor's main street and taken into the Citibank premises. There, he was shown Jack's body. Bertie was aghast, saying, Murder Mr Phillips! I know Mr. Phillips. I did not murder him. On being shown Fanny's body, he said, Who is this lady? The inquest, which had been formally opened on Monday morning, was resumed on Tuesday at 10am. The jury was taken to the city bank to view the bodies. Back at Carcor's courthouse, they heard the deposition given by Annie Phillips that named Bertie, and they heard of the positive identifications made of him by Susan and Agnes. Joseph Derwin testified about Jack and his dealings with Bertie on behalf of the bank. A man named Stephen Wright from Cara told of finding the bloodstained clothes and the mask. Dr Hawthorne testified about the hideous nature of the wounds to the victims and how the various minor wounds on Bertie matched bloodstains on the clothes that had been found. Thomas Ferner, who'd been employed by Bertie as a butcher in Carcor, told of how he hadn't been paid his wages and of how Bertie had frequently spoken of the money troubles he'd been having and had asked for cash. Constable Meagher testified about the arrest in Cowra and how Bertie had suddenly acted strange and what he'd said about being mad. The policeman told the court, quote, He looks all right while in the cell, but when anyone attempts to speak to him, he assumes the utmost violence, like a lunatic. From his place in the Carcourt court, Bertie watched the inquest proceedings with interest, but also with his mouth hanging open the entire time. As the Goulburn Evening Penny Post reported, he, quote, seemed to be adopting the facial expression of an idiot. He pretends to be, or is, mad. But Dr Hawthorne, who has examined him, will not yet say whether the suspect is sane or insane. The police in the Crown's case was and would be that Bertie was not mad. He'd planned the robbery carefully, as was shown by him stashing a change of clothes, by him coming to Carcourt under cover of darkness, by him breaking into the bank quietly, and by him taking the precaution of making and wearing a mask. 
He'd brought an axe with him to the bank, and he'd used it savagely to murder Jack and Fanny and to try to kill Annie. His demand for the keys to the safe showed his mercenary motive, rather than one simply born in the heat of the moment by mad, ungovernable passion. His determined escape demonstrated he had a guilty mind, as did the way he conducted himself in Kara in trying to cover his tracks. In short, he'd shown a great deal of cunning as a sane killer, one who, if convicted, would deservedly hang for his crimes. The inquest jury found Bertie guilty and the judge committed him to stand trial for murder in Bathurst in October. The Karkor tragedy, as it was known from coast to coast across the colonies, was a sensation to rival the previous year's Melbourne murder case that had resulted in the execution of Frederick Bailey Deeming. The man, many say, was also Jack the Ripper. The Karkor tragedy coverage included reports that recalled that Jack Phillips had lost his father in a rock fishing accident in their hometown of Kiama when the boy was 14, and that he'd been traumatised ever since. As well as the barrier miner reporting that Jack had actually been the one to accidentally kill his father, newspapers characterised Jack as a nervous Nelly who'd been unable to fire the revolver and save himself and his family. The newspapers said that incoming car call bank manager, Mr. Healy, was an altogether tougher individual and he would likely have stopped the assailant in his tracks. In the lead-up to the trial, newspapers also widely reported that May Summerbell had predicted Fanny Kavanagh's fate, and her own, in that strange fortune-telling session at the German Fair at Sydney's Prince Alfred Park in September 1892. Did that actually happen? The answer is maybe. I have been able to verify from September 1892 newspaper articles that May Summerbell indeed was telling fortunes at that fair. Whether Fanny consulted her wasn't then recorded. She did live pretty close nearby, so it's very likely she attended the fair. If it wasn't true, May Summerbell might have denied the story. Certainly, she corrected other reports she deemed as false. One scurrilous article in the Sunday Times had claimed that she was penniless, that she only owned one dress, she'd had to pawn her rings to support herself, and that she'd been duped by Bertie and so on. Incensed, May publicly refuted these claims, and went into detail to explain her circumstances. So, perhaps, as unlikely as the fortune-telling story sounds, it wasn't a fabrication. Bertie Glasson's trial began at the Bathurst Sessions of the Circuit Court on the morning of Thursday the 19th of October, 1893. Before 9am, some two or three hundred people had gathered outside the courthouse, and they stampeded into the public gallery as soon as doors were thrown open. Many were disappointed at not being able to get in and get a seat. Among them was May Summerbell, who'd travelled from Sydney to support her husband. The judge, Sir George Innes, took Bertie's plea of not guilty, which he delivered in a firm, clear voice. Annie Phillips had survived her wounds, but she was still in no condition to testify. She had made a second deposition, also identifying Bertie, and this was read into evidence. Her sister Susan did testify, and she pointed Bertie out as the man who'd killed her brother-in-law Jack, her best friend Fanny, and who'd left Annie fighting for her life. The jury heard Constable Meagher's testimony about the search, 
the arrest and Bertie's immediate erratic behaviour and the claim that he must have been mad. On the second day, May Summerbell testified in her husband's defence. She was described in the newspapers as being in delicate health. This was reference to her pregnancy. May told the court she'd known Bertie her whole life. They'd gotten married on the 18th of January, 1893. She knew that he was a squatter's son and that he had a station. May said her husband had always been very gentle and amiable. As the Goulburn Evening Penny Post characterised her evidence, quote, He was always most kind and attentive to men, women, children and animals. But things, she said, had changed around March of 1893. From then on, May said, her husband used to cry and sob a great deal. Bertie, she said, had told her that he was having trouble getting £800 from a man who owed him this money. Quote, this seemed to trouble him greatly, and whenever he referred to the matter, he would burst out crying. Bertie, she said, suffered terribly from insomnia and stabbing head pains. He used to clutch at his head, fall to his knees and cry out, I'm going mad. One time, she said, during one of these attacks, he had to be confined to a darkened room where he was given injections of cocaine. Then, on the 17th of September, 1893, that is, just a week before the murders, he'd suffered heatstroke in the Sydney Botanic Gardens. She'd had to take him back to the Hotel Metropole and bandage his head. But he'd torn off this dressing in his agony and delirium. Yet the last time May had seen him before the tragedy, Bertie had seemed to be all right. She told the court, quote, On Saturday 23rd September, when he left me at the Hotel Metropole, he said he was going to Orange to collect some money owing to him. He was kind and gentle then, and appeared to be in his ordinary state of mind. His last words to me were, God bless you. May's sister Elsie corroborated her accounts of Bertie's head pains, odd behaviour, and recent sunstroke. If May's evidence was to be believed, and it was described as being straightforward and credible, then Bertie may have suffered a mental disturbance right when he was dealing with secret financial stresses that would ruin him, and perhaps, in his eyes at least, render him worthless to his wife. But was this insanity? The jury had more to ponder when it heard startling evidence from Constable Charles Pryor of Dubbo. He told the court he'd had charge of Bertie in Carcor during the inquest there. Constable Pryor said that on several occasions, the accused had told a hysterical, convoluted story about being accosted by two men in Sydney. One he described as being a dark man. The other was described as being an Irishman. These two thugs had threatened his life, and they'd also threatened to kill his wife, May, unless he did their bidding. Their bidding was that he procure an axe and meet them in Blaney in three weeks' time. That was the 23rd of September. When he did this, they got him drunk and forced him to walk to Carcor. One of the men had gone inside the city bank. Bertie had waited outside in the darkness with the other man. Inside, there had been screams. Presumably, this was Jack and Fanny being slaughtered. The man standing with Bertie had ordered him to go inside and upstairs to wield the axe and to menace Annie and Susan and demand they give him the keys to the safe. When he did this, he saw that Annie had already been axed in the face. Seeing him, she thought he'd been the one to do it and had said, Oh Bertie, has it come to this? 
She asked if he'd killed her husband. Bertie said he hadn't. He hadn't done anything. Then he'd left, and outside, the two men had put Bertie on a horse and told him to ride off. Bertie had come to his senses in that paddock outside Cowra, and that's when he'd written his letter to May. It was a crazy story. The constable told the court. He also said he could see that he'd been a fool and the men only wanted to make a tool of him, that they had worked things so that he should be caught and punished for what they had done. The constable testified that Bertie had told this story in disjointed and hysterical fashion. Whether it was something that he actually believed, whether it was evidence of his insanity, well, that was for the jury to ponder. Three doctors also gave evidence about insanity, the development of mental disease and the sudden onset of mania for the jury to consider. One of these doctors said he had seen Bertie in June on several occasions, this being around the time of those head pains and his supposedly strange behaviour. But this doctor said there was nothing that had led him to believe that Bertie was irresponsible for his actions. And this was the crux of the matter, whether Bertie had been able to tell right from wrong. On the third day of the trial, Bertie's barrister gave his concluding address. He wasn't claiming that Bertie had not been in the city bank, but if he had been there, he was mad at the time and not responsible for anything he'd done. The barrister reminded the jury of Bertie's previous good behaviour and his kind disposition, and the barrister dwelt on the theory the experts had put forward, that it was possible for an ordinary sane man to snap at any moment. But the Crown Prosecutor wasn't having any of it. Bertie had wanted to rob the bank because he was financially desperate, and he'd killed anyone who got in his way. Summing up, His Honour said that while the Carcord tragedy was one of the most horrible and heartbreaking crimes in the colony's history, the jury must put their horror and pity aside and restrict themselves to the crucial questions. Quote, Was he insane? Did he know what he was doing, that he was killing two fellow beings? If the jury believed that Bertie had been unable to distinguish right from wrong, then they must acquit him. Otherwise, he was guilty of murder. The jury retired at 10 to 4 that afternoon, and they were back in just 25 minutes. Bertie Glasson was guilty of murder. He trembled as his honour asked if there was anything he had to say. Bertie responded, I have to say this, although the jury have acted according to their consciences and done the best they could according to the evidence, I am not guilty. I have made my peace with my God, but as true as God is my maker, my conscience is clear of the terrible crime of which I have been found guilty as that of any man who has trod the earth. His Honour pronounced the sentence of death. Bertie Glasson was to hang by the neck until he was dead. Bertie took this calmly and spoke to his legal counsel immediately about launching a petition for a reprieve. On the next day, the Sunday, May Summerbell was allowed to see her husband in Bathurst Jail. Bertie's calm had deserted him. He sobbed and he cried hysterically. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, She assured him of her conviction of his innocence and he grew more composed and hopeful. May said she'd do whatever she could to see that his sentence was commuted on the ground of insanity. This gave Bertie hope, as the Sydney Morning Herald told readers, quote, 
the condemned man has since become calmer and fully believes that his wife will be successful. Just as Annie Phillips' pluck in battling Bernie in the darkened bank had been celebrated in the newspapers, so too was May Somerville praised for standing by her man, despite what he'd done. The Sunday Times reported, quote, She refused to believe that Bertie Glasson, in his sober senses, could have committed the Carcord tragedy. The poor child wife is another wonderful illustration of womanly devotion. May petitioned the New South Wales Governor and the Executive Council. Bertie wrote a lot of letters on his own behalf too, pleading that he didn't remember the details of the horrible crime. This was similar to the plea that had been made by his fellow murderer, Frederick Bailey Deeming. Bertie also wrote to May, telling her he was now at peace with whatever happened and he was prepared to meet God. He wanted May to save herself from shame. As the Sunday Times told readers, quote, He begs his wife to leave New South Wales and live in some country where her misfortune will not be known and where no one will remind her of the fate of her Bertie. May Somerville's valiant attempts to save Bertie Glasson were unsuccessful. The famous Sydney hangman, Robert Howard, a.k.a. Nosy Bob, was sent out to Bathurst Jail. On the morning of Wednesday the 29th of November 1893, Bertie Glasson went to the gallows. He was described as walking firmly onto the platform, where he gave a calm speech to the 20 or so jail, police and justice officials who were to witness his end. Quote, I say as I stand here, during the last few seconds that are given me to live, and I say it before my God, that I am an innocent man, am innocent of the crime for which I am suffering. Was Bertie protesting innocence due to insanity? No, he was not. He said his solicitors had proceeded with that defence against his wishes, but he did not blame them for this. He said there were truths and statements that had not been made known. He wished that one day they would be made public. Suffice to say, quote, I am dying for the sin of another. My last thoughts are of my Maker and God, whom I love and adore. It is with the utmost comfort and assurance that I now go to meet him. My last word is of my beloved and devoted wife. And now, goodbye. Nosy Bob pulled the bolt. Bertie Glasson dropped and mercifully appeared to die instantly. It seems clear to me that Bertie Glasson was in awe of May Somerville and that he was most likely amazed that he'd been the one to woo and to marry this beautiful, talented woman who so many admired. It would follow that Bertie was deathly afraid of losing her. He'd sold himself to her as a rich young pastoralist. But from the time of their marriage, his fortunes, like so many fortunes during the economic depression, had foundered. Would she leave him when he was exposed as a financial fraud? How would he support their child? Hence his plan to rob the bank, and his fearful frenzy when disturbed. That he was misguidedly doing it for May seems clear from the fact that he wrote to her immediately after committing the crime that after his arrest, his first thought was, what would she think? And that his last words on this earth were about her. Thing was, May Somerville seemed like a very staunch individual, 
who would have stuck by him even if he was a pauper. Certainly, she stuck by him after he committed a double murder. We began this episode with Mae Summerbell's life before she married Bertie Glasson and the strange prediction she reportedly made about the fate she and Fanny Kavanagh were to share. So I think it's fitting that we end with Mae's life after Bertie, for it was truly remarkable. She didn't move away and hide, as he'd advised in that letter. On Christmas Day 1893, just four weeks after Bertie was hanged, May gave birth to their daughter, who she named Noella. For a year or so, May kept to herself and looked after the baby. But in 1895, May relaunched her music career with a new composition that was well-received by critics and the public. Professionally, May would from there go from strength to strength. Personally, though, she would suffer more marital woes. Her second husband left her with twin sons, fled to South Africa, faked his own death, and then came back to Australia in 1911 and begged May to take him back. She rightly divorced the cad. On the outbreak of the First World War, May's fame became fused with her patriotism. Her song, So Long, was written for the men who'd volunteered to fight, and it was played as they marched to the ships that would take them to Gallipoli. Some 2,000 copies of So Long were distributed among Australian soldiers, so it could be played and sung wherever they went. One of May's subsequent songs, Wanted for the Fighting Line, would be widely used on the home front for recruiting. While May Somerville was a single mother of three and a prolific musical composer and performer, she somehow also found time to be a pioneering Australian newspaper woman. During the pre-war and war period, she was the music critic for the Sunday Times and later edited the women's pages for the Times and the Evening News. Given these interests, May later had plenty to talk about with her daughter's husband, the journalist Kenneth Slesser who was to become Australia's most famous poet. After her own long and storied life, May Summerbell died in 1948, some 55 years after her first husband went to the gallows as an axe murderer. May was 81. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. I'll be back with another episode as soon as I can. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.